My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Spoke. The Departure. The Second Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicion. Resistance. The Unexpected. Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Answer. The Beginning. Book 43, The Test. The Test. What do we think of this one? It's a Tobias book. I love Tobias books. So, hey, you guys. You know how for the last several books I've been saying, remember there was a torture book? Yeah. Well, the books remembered now, too. And they would like to tell us about PTSD. (laughs) They would. Yeah, yeah. This is a direct sequel. I think it's the same ghostwriter, I think. I mean, it makes sense. That ghostwriter was like, I have a theme, and you are going to hear about it. I thought this one, I mean, I don't remember this at all, but I I thought this one was really good. I thought it, yeah, it really held together as a book, explored a lot of really interesting stuff. I feel like we haven't had one this good in a while. Uh, Yeah, I also feel like we haven't had one this good in a while. It's like, there were a couple things in it that are weird. Maybe it's just because all of Tobias's reactions to book 33 are contained in this book. Mm, Um, But mm -hmm. like, yeah, in particular, there's one Tobias-Rachel interaction that felt a little off. But okay, yeah, we we should talk talk about about that. It is interesting, the episodic nature of this book, these books sometimes make it hard to follow up on like big things that happen, especially if they only affect one character strongly, and then he doesn't get another book for 10 books, and they keep reminding us that he was tortured and that it affected him, but like, we've really been like, okay, and, and, and now it's like, and here is this huge thing that's all about that. Yeah. And it's a little bit, a little bit weird that it's all concentrated in this book. Would you both like to be reminded of what happens in- so would. This book? Yeah, so in this book, Tobias is uh, flying around in the forest, having some thoughts. We learned that he, uh, whenever he has been hunting prey, he has PTSD-style flashbacks to being tortured by Taylor. She's like a voice in his head. That happened back in book 33, the last Tobias book. And he sees that there is a search party out for a young boy. He proceeds to rescue the boy so that he can feel heroic, uh, but in the process of doing it, gets dive-bombed by a golden eagle and knocked out. When he's knocked out, his wing is broken, and he's taken in by some people, animal rehabilitators a la Cassie's parents, who know that he is Superbird, who saved this boy, and is like, hey, check out the papers. You're an awesome bird who psychically told a guy where to find his lost son. And Tobias is like, crap, now I'm trapped. I can't morph in front of these people, but the Yerks are coming for me. Hopefully the Animorphs will come for me sooner. Um, so three factions all arrive at once to either rescue or apprehend Tobias. Some hork reporting to Visser 3, the Animorphs, and a group of human controllers led by Taylor who isn't dead, hasn't been executed by Visser 3 for her failure in Book 33. In fact, she now claims to be leading a group of power-hungry, pro-democracy yerks. And she manages to recapture Tobias, rig him up inside a uh, another cage 
with a, tra- a booby trap so that he has to listen to her. And she makes him an offer that she thinks the Animorphs can't refuse, which is work with me to overthrow Visser Three, and we will usher in a new era of, you know, Yerk cooperation. And then she lets Tobias go free. And he, of course, has been terrified this whole time and can't believe that he has been captured again, but also that he escaped. So he goes back to the other Animorphs and he's like, okay, should we deal with Taylor? She's probably lying, but maybe we should deal with her. The Animorphs are like, I don't know, seems kind of crazy, but uh, why not hear her out? What's the worst that could happen? So Tobias, while being captured, acquired Taylor. So he's able to morph Taylor and meet her face to face at Borders. It's so cool. And Taylor explains that her plan is to have the Animorphs tunnel from a natural gas pipeline to the Yerk pool using taxon morphs uh, so that Taylor can flood the Yerk pool with gas and blow it up, creating a giant sinkhole in downtown wherever, California, but killing all the Yerks or hosts at the pool, um, basically causing a lot of damage. Actually, that's what I think would happen. Taylor claims that it would the explosion would be contained to the Yerk pool and not level the city. The Animorphs are concerned, of course, that it will level the city. Anyway, the plan is to flood the place with gas and blow it up. And the Animorphs have this really long debate about the morality of doing something this bad in terms of the loss of life, especially the loss of non-combatant life, like in a way that this isn't self-defense, but they decide to go through with it. So Axe and Tobias acquire taxons uh, and are able to, with some difficulty, harness the taxon morphs to eat dirt instead of their friends. Um, So they tunnel over the course of a couple of hours from the pipeline to the Yerk pool. And Cassie at this point has said like, I'm out. I can't do this. If you're going to blow up a bunch of Yerks, innocent hosts and Yerks, even if they're in the Yerk pool, even if Yerks are bad, I I can't, I can't help this. I'll fight in self-defense, but not otherwise. And right when Tobias has made it all the way to the Yerk pool, Taylor, who's been lurking nearby, basically says, hey, Tobias, you know, I know you so well. I see how fundamentally weak you are. But with me, you could be strong. Let me infest you. I'll, I'll give up Taylor and have your amazing Andalite body. And we together can rule and make the laws in this brand new quote unquote democracy. And Tobias is like, nah. So Taylor runs away and knocks out all the other Animorphs and sets the, the gas to flooding. And the Animorphs are almost exploded, but suddenly the gas uh, is turned off. And the Animorphs are like, well, that was really lucky. And they go and investigate the gas pumping station and they find a battlefield where tons of human controllers have been really hurt. They're all alive, uh, but it turns out that Cassie had discovered that the Animorphs were in trouble and knew that she could save them by turning off the gas. So she fought a really tough battle all by herself to turn off the gas and save the day. And although Tobias says like, thank you, you know, it was worth it. You know, it's okay now, come with us. Cassie's like, no, it's not gonna be okay. And then Tobias and Rachel have a cute moment um, at a hidden cove on the beach where they kind of talk about what they were willing to do. Rachel reveals that, you know, Cassie had reached out to the York Peace Movement and found out that maybe Taylor was trying to double cross them and blow up a bunch of 
hosts used by the York Peace Movement. And so maybe Taylor was actually working with Visser III, but we don't really know what happened to Taylor. And it's all very complicated. And Tobias, who's been reflecting on kind of his decision to, to become trapped in morph back in the first book, thinks about taking Rachel's advice to just kind of let the past and choices in the past go and move forward together with her. The end. Okay, so great. What was your, I want to hear more about your, your reaction when you realized how direct a sequel this was. Oh, I was really surprised because I know you guys, you'd asked me um, in our last, uh, when I was trying to predict this book, which one it was a sequel to, and I was eh, not correct. Being a, the queen of predictions comes and goes. <laughs> you're still <laughs> the queen, right? Don't worry. Yeah, no, you're, Thank you. it's a position yeah. for life. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't actually realize Taylor would come back so quickly. What I, what I, when I realized it was a sequel, I thought it was more of an emotional sequel rather than a direct, like the same character show up. And that was real close to the beginning when all of a sudden Tobias is basically reliving his torture in his head. And he hears Taylor's voice making him question who he is and what decisions he's made and, and what kind of a person he is. And it is dreadful. Animorphs, PTSD edition, but also yeah. like, it's truly visceral. I mean, the things that she's saying to him in his head are like, I will break you. You can't win. There's no way out. And Tobias says, I thought the torture was over. I didn't realize the torture doesn't end when you're freed. And I would just like to all caps point out, these books are middle grade. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, I the thing about that beginning is that like it's not triggered by Taylor showing up again because Taylor hasn't shown up again at this point. This is just how he's been living since 33. Yeah. We have to gather. And we haven't seen his point of view since then except in Megamorph's 4 which was a different timeline. So, yeah, he just this is voices that in his head. Well, and you you get we've had the other animorphs kind of flippantly reference the torture or been mm-hmm. like he's so moody. He keeps Right. And then like we had the bit in 41 where Jake reaches out like, hey, Tobias, and they just see him like flying away. Mm -hmm. And Rachel's like, no, I got to go catch up to him. Right. So like there is this kind of like something, I mean, maybe something's actually up with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, honestly, I would have written him differently in 37 if I'd read this one more recently or had any memory of this one. Right. Like, you know, Rachel was in his head. This wasn't there. Like I, I hadn't realized as a reader how strongly this was affecting him. Right. Yeah. You mentioned Megamorphs 4 and the thing that struck me sort of like halfway through this is Taylor like directly reads into his vulnerability. Like she's making this argument of like, you're a weak and you need me a year to control you. Mm-hmm. So it, it speaks really well to the alternate timeline we saw in Megamorphs 4 where Tobias is a, almost a voluntary controller, mm. right? Where it's like, he wanted to believe that and he like wanted to escape and all these other things. And mm-hmm. like, it's so interesting to have, I sort of felt like this was at least that part of it talking about who Tobias was before the series started to the extent that it came up really reflects the Megamorphs for Tobias as well as mm-hmm. the, the one from book 33. Do you think he was yeah. tempted in the same way? Like to what extent did he take Taylor's offer seriously? I would have to look at the text yeah. again, I think. Well, we sh- should we look at it? Yeah. I don't think he took it seriously, but I'm, I'm curious. I think that he was... He was definitely affected by her words about his weakness. And I mean, she's manipulating him, right? She's, she's sort of negging him in a way. Like she's 
telling him he's really weak and then also telling him that like these other Andalite bandits, like I couldn't do anything with them, but you're better than that. And so it's like the combination of these things doesn't really make any sense, but it's part of this whole manipulation strategy. The thing that jumped at me is that he's, okay, so we can set the scene a little bit more, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, Tobias in Taxonmorph has just burrowed into the yerk pool mm-hmm. and he's going to go back and say, okay, time for the plan. We're going to explode this thing. Mm-hmm. And Taylor shows up and they're sitting, looking down on the yerk pool and Taylor has like incapacitated the other animorphs. So she can, she can tempt Tobias. Mm-hmm. And as she is doing this, Tobias notices the little nook that he hid in as a mm-hmm. red tailed hawk mm-hmm. um, when he got trapped back in the first book. And so he's reflecting on like, did I want to stay? Did I, did I choose to become a hawk? And he's like, well, I had no choice. I couldn't let, I couldn't demorph or they would have caught my friends. I couldn't have flown out over the pool or they would have shot me, right? He's, but then he's thinking like, there's always a choice, right? Mm-hmm. So he could have gotten himself killed. He could have gotten his friends in trouble, but he chose to stay in the fight. So I feel yeah. like to the extent that he, to the extent that he considers Taylor's offer, He's like reflecting on the idea, I could say yes, even if he never wants to. Mm. I think that he's thinking to himself, like, I don't like I don't have to do this. I don't have to keep fighting. I could yeah. do something else, even if no part of him wants to agree to it. Yeah, he's sort of realizing the power of choice in this scene, or that he has the power of choice. And that also is an interesting connection to Megamorphs 4, because he has that whole thing after he's become a controller, where he's like, I, what other choice did I have? Well, I could have endured. Okay, it was like a crappy choice, but I did have that choice. And I wonder if this is, like he, this Tobias doesn't remember that thought process, but he's sort of having the opportunity when faced with the possibility of infestation to recognize his own power to determine his own life. Oh, interestingly, the, the thing he says to her is like, I'm stronger than that. You're only out for power and control. I think that power as your only goal is pointless, which is interesting from someone who's been berating himself for being weak the entire book. And he's realizing that like strength comes from refusing power. Hmm. Maybe I don't know. Well, so before that, it's interesting the what he wants, even though she's transparent, like Taylor, I'm just going to say it now, even though it's a tangent, they shouldn't have trusted Taylor this much. It's completely ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. That's like, that's like kind of the thing about this book that like, Taylor even told them not to trust her. The human host told her. I do love Taylor. Maybe she's just so charismatic, right? Like (laughs) that comes through. But anyway, we'll talk about Taylor more later. Going back to what she offers him, when he's considering it, he's like, will I be free? Will I be happy? Right? Because he's he's Mm -hmm. trapped and unhappy in his current life. Mm -hmm. And that's why he became a controlling Megamorphs 4. That's like part of his whole identity shtick throughout Mm -hmm. the whole series. It's like, you know, he's free as a hawk, sort of, but he's also trapped as a hawk and he's happy, but he's unhappy, right? Like, so the idea of becoming a controller to be free is pretty silly, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. he's free to make the choice, right? Yeah. Like, um, Yeah, it seemed to me like he wasn't really asking her those things like with the intent of accepting what she was offering. It was more reflecting on because like he at the same time he's looking at his Nothlet birthplace as he puts it. And it seems like he's only half paying attention to her and half focusing on this other choice that he made that we've sort of wondered about and like is being addressed more here than it has been in the whole series of like 
did I have a choice at that point? Is this what I chose? Yeah. Am I free? Am I happy? I love, I just want to say, I love going back to the first book as like kind of a soft retcon almost. Like mm-hmm. I sort of feel like maybe in 13, we had it when it's like the elements is like, isn't this what you want? Like we got a little bit of the like, was the choice? But I really like this, like his memory of it actually takes us back to that scene. And we learn like more concrete details about that scene in a way that the series rarely does. It rarely fills in the past like that. And I really loved it. Yeah, and it it makes it much more clear what Tobias was going through at that moment. Not just literally what he was doing, but how he was making those decisions, which we didn't see because of course it was a Jake book. And I really appreciated the way that we learned about how he was thinking in that moment. And that for him, it did feel like a choice. The way it was written, it it very much didn't feel like a choice, right? He got trapped, two-hour time limit, there was nothing he could do now, he's a hawk. And in the way that he describes it here, it's much more about being, about making the decision that maybe there was still time for me to morph yet, the other Animorphs had escaped, maybe I'll be trapped, and then if I morph now, I will give away my friends, and I, I can't do that. So I'm going to make the decision to try and get out while still in hawk morph, even if it means I'll never be able to morph again, even if it means I'll be a knoplet. And he also says, and this is another kind of Megamorphs 4 moment, that being trapped forever as a bird makes him independent, free, alone forever. But then he remembers his human life, which is also dreadful, apathetic aunt, alcoholic uncle. And then it's this wonderful repetition of the weakness versus strength moment where he says like something gave me, something surged through my mind, shoring me up. But was it weakness or was it strength? Was I being a coward or was I being brave? And he doesn't know the answer to that when he thinks back to to book one. Now, I would argue he was obviously being very brave and very strong and he's a very good kid and I love him. Uh You see why he has that. And part of it is because of Taylor being such a gigantically terrible person and putting those thoughts into his head, but also because that's who Tobias is. He's incredibly introspective in a way that sometimes gets in his own way. Yeah, this sort of, he's obsessed with whether he himself is a strong person. Is something we've seen a little bit from Cassie, like her her worry in uh, Megamorphs 1, like, am I a coward? Am I not? And I don't know to what extent we've seen quite that same question from the other Animorphs, but like, it is something that's been sort of recurring for Tobias, like feeling like he's not doing enough because he couldn't morph for the first like 13 books and feeling like he has something to compensate for. And yeah, he does have this really understandable, like fundamental insecurity that like some of the others just don't have. It's like he sees it as a character flaw Mm -hmm. and not like he's made a mistake or right. It's like, he's like fundamentally different or bad or broken. Yeah. It's not was, is this action going to be correct? It's like, does this action show that I'm weak or strong? Yeah. Which makes it all the more interesting that where he ends up is is about choices. It's not at the end, he doesn't say, oh, that was me being strong. He says, Mm -hmm. I made a choice. It's over. I have to accept that that's what I did and move on. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't actually answer the question that he has at the beginning of, am I weak or am I strong? Did I do the right thing? It just, the, the answer that Rachel gives him, and I think in part because she's Rachel, but the answer is just, you made a choice 
and that's what you did and you can't dwell on it anymore because it's over, we have to move on. And I just thought it was interesting that the question wasn't answered really. I think the answer to the question is, you gotta stop asking the question, buddy. Like, it's not the most important thing, like sitting there being like, am I weak or am I strong? Like the important thing is like what you do. And I think that is part of why Rachel is helpful to him at this point, because I think he get he's getting so in his own head about this stuff. And she's like, no, you just, you did a thing. You gotta, you gotta move past it. Let that be in the past and just like, you know, live your current life. And I think that is actually what he needed to hear. Like what he, he didn't need an answer to the question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, she also does say like, you're the strongest person I know. You're incredibly strong. Look at all these things that you do. And then guides him away from the question. So it's not that she totally neglects that part of it. Yeah. I'm just, I'm realizing that I really, really like this book. There's like a lot, like if you take the idea of Tobias being willing to work with Taylor for its like thematic value, right? Mm -hmm. Like at the beginning of the book, he's having her voice in, in his head like beating him down and by the end he's like he's like, like literally taylor like twirls her mustache and like flies out of the narrative never does, to be does, seen again does she right? do that does she literally twirl her mustache i missed that and that sounds amazing no so like when the gas trap is sprung taylor like she's like cackling and she <laughs> she's like flying through the she air. flies through the air and like disappears from the story right and then tobias at the end is like I wonder what happened to Taylor, but like, at least her voice isn't in my head. Like maybe she'll come back, maybe not. So like, but getting back to the theme of it, right? Like he starts out the book haunted by his past. Mm -hmm. And even though at the end, he's, it seems like he's not going to be as struggling with the PTSD ish stuff and the negative self-talk, but also like Taylor is like a question mark narratively, right? Like it works, it works really well. Yeah, the thing you were saying, they shouldn't have trusted Taylor. Like, they 100% should not have trusted Taylor. And it seemed like the other Animorphs were letting Tobias make that choice. And Tobias kept making the choice to go along with her. And he himself didn't really understand why. At one point, he was like, why do I keep defending her? Like, doesn't seem like she deserves that. Like, why am I defending the choice to work with her when I know what she is? And it did seem like he just he needed to get her out of his head. Like he couldn't let that be unfinished because she wasn't going to go away. I also like what Taylor represents for the Animorphs though, right? Yeah. So like we've seen Tobias, we joke about how like Tobias is the one who killed Hitler and like destroyed the Mercora, <laughs> right? But in this book for the entire Animorphs, Taylor basically represents the strength of a preemptive strike of killing non-combatants, of taking mm-hmm. stuff way mm-hmm. further than they've ever taken it before in a way that makes them all super uncomfortable. And so like having her as like the villain suggesting it and then being like, well, I don't know. Like, obviously that's literally what happens, but Tobias more and more because he's compensating for this idea of him being weak Ooh, is leaning yeah. into it. And in the conversation that rang a little false to me is the one where Rachel is like, we can't kill humans. And Tobias is like, but we have to kill Yerkes. Oh, but like narratively, he at that point is so committed to like being strong. He's like, it's strong if I work with Taylor, right? Like uh-huh. at each step, Taylor is like, oh, well, like if you let me get to you, then, you know, you're showing weakness. And yeah. that's leading him down a dark path to the point where he's like willing to do bad stuff. He's more willing than Rachel to do this yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, so Rachel, I, we should talk more about Rachel's conflicted feelings because that feels kind of genuine to me. Like that, I, 
I believe that Rachel could have those feelings. We haven't seen them from her recently, and I like seeing them from her. And the fact that Tobias is in an emotional place where he is not willing to entertain her objection says a lot about yeah. a lot about him and what he's going through in this book. Yeah. And like, it's interesting though that he he turns away from Taylor's specific offer because he finds inner strength, mm-hmm. not because he decides it's wrong to blow up the York pool. Right. Right. So like, it's really interesting for his character like that's where like it works and that's why the cassie thing is so good as a parallel yeah right tobias can't see outside of himself enough it seems like to even right he doesn't doesn't realize he didn't he didn't realize that taylor brought him to do this bad thing if she hadn't if she maybe if she hadn't been so evil (laughs) they would have gone through with it right like you know i don't know you were gonna say something great no i want to talk a little bit more about the scene where they actually make that decision Mm. Um, because I I thought it was it was sort of interesting to me the way that that played out so part of the reason it was interesting is because they're having an argument that I have with you guys all the time and Mm -hmm. I love when they have it too as per usual Cassie is coming at it from a very compassionate very ethical standpoint she's basically saying that you know we blow up a yerk pool full of yerks but also full of controllers and we're responsible for the death of hundreds, maybe thousands of people who are involuntary controllers who are already suffering this terrible fate. How can we just kill them and justify it by also saying we're killing a bunch of defenseless yerks? Now, I think Cassie should have stuck with the not killing involuntary controllers argument and ignored the enemy combatants not currently in a combatant argument because seriously, who gives a shit? But <laughs> I see where she's coming from. So. She's, she's saying this, you know, she, her argument is that, you know, defenseless yerks, but also involuntary controllers and voluntary controllers, I mean, they're all going to die. And that is something that she can't justify to herself. She says, I can, you know, I can defend myself, I can defend my friends, but I hate violence. And this feels like murder to me. I can't do it. And she, she backs out. And what I think is really interesting is that Rachel is very much understands where she's coming from and kind of agrees with her. But once the decision is made, Rachel is fully committed and, and to, to go along with this plan. But also that the person who makes the call isn't Tobias. This isn't one of those situations where Jake says, okay, she talked to you. You're the person in charge. You make the call. Jake makes the decision. I might've expected that Jake would have Tobias make the call because Tobias is so emotionally connected to the decision mm-hmm. because Taylor gives it to him and because it's so connected with his history with her. But Jake is the one who says, here's the justification. We have to do this. And then later he does give Tobias a little more, more of a traditional decision. And I thought that was really end of discussion at one point. And it was really authoritarian in a way that Jake isn't always. Or yeah. And the way he related with Cassie in that situation was also really weird. Um, so Cassie says, what about the peace movement? Good point. That will come up later. What if Tom is there? What if he's at the pool? And Jake is like, guess that's a sacrifice I'll have to deal with. Family involvement doesn't come into play here. It's not like we're bombing a bunch of innocent people at the mall on a Friday afternoon. And Cassie's like, isn't it? Which is a really good point. But he like gently her down when she's talking about this and like he's he's nice about it but he is clearly shutting her down in a way that seemed really kind of odd to me 
for once I have a slightly more charitable read on Jake, I'm thinking about this as much as I hate book 41. I'm thinking about this in the context of 41, right? So Mark is trying to say big picture. Axe is saying the Yerk pool is a, it's like a command and control center. It's like an obvious valid military target. Uh, Cassie's like, what about the peace movement? Um, it's not fair. That's their only way to eat, right? They're definitely innocent. Jake then says they're a minority and he's cold. Hmm. Cassie says, what if your brother's there? And then it says, Jake looked at his hands. I guess it's a sacrifice I have to deal with in order to protect thousands more, Jake said, his voice now expressionless. And then she says, Jake, I don't believe you. And then he says, you should, looking back to Cassie. So in my preferred reading of 41, right, like he's sort of, well, whichever way it is, whatever choice he made in 41, save Cassie, save everybody, he's been thinking a lot about the sacrifices that he's, he's willing to make. And he maybe knows how close to the end of his rope he is, right? So I don't know yeah. how much that's playing into his decision-making of like, we have to start taking more aggressive risks because Ooh. these battles are getting worse and worse. We can't right? do this forever. Yeah, I think the part you just read makes me think that his decision at the end of 41 must have been to sacrifice Cassie because it seems like he's doubling down on that. And it's not like anything happened that would have changed his mind from that. Or maybe, what if, I'm going to contradict everything I just said, he says at the end of 41, he's like, I know my limitations now. Maybe he's trying to conquer those limitations. Mm. But he still lets Cassie back out of the mission. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know that that's I guess, right, if Cassie's there, he won't be able to be as, like, aggressive. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel know. like yeah, yeah. He, he never has forced any of them to fight, and that would be a different sort of thing that there's no reason for him to do here. I was thinking of it also, and it's interesting to have Jake and Cassie on, like Jake is arguing for this like extreme terrorist move and Cassie's arguing against it. It's the opposite of what we saw in Jake's dream, where I guess Jake wanted to see himself as the one who'd argue against the terrorism. And yeah, and he was sort of haunted by an idea of Cassie the terrorist. I think we also brought up in the discussion of 41, like, they, we've already talked about them sort of being terrorists. Mm -hmm. Um, But this does make it very clear, like, okay, this is the line that they don't usually cross. And now they're thinking about crossing it, where they like kill a bunch of people in a single stroke, including civilians, instead of one by one. Yeah, I mean, except for that one time when Rachel crashed a jet into the year pool. We don't worry, that book didn't happen. <laughs> no, but Grace, that's such a good point. And another reason why that book is so tonally absurd. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, they didn't even discuss that. I do think the thing where Cassie keeps being like, well, I'm okay killing people in self-defense is a little disingenuous because usually the Animorphs are attacking. And in a larger sense, it's defense of the planet, but she's not just defending her friends. Like when they attack a Dunkin' Donuts factory that's making portable Candronas, like they could have just not attacked. Like <laughs> that is not self-defense any more than blowing up the year pool is, yeah. or any less than blowing up the year pool is self-defense. Unsurprisingly, I have a more generous read on Cassie because she, she winds up with the self-defense thing, but she's being, uh-huh. she's being inarticulate. And Tobias is saying like, I could tell yeah. Like the oh, passion point is, is valid. The yeah. passion is radiating off of her and she, at the she just ends her thing being like I know she's like I know that it's self defense and like they're non-combatant and like you know are they a threat or not like they're unwilling and then she's like I just know that it's not right. You know, I right? love like, that. Yeah. What did you guys think of uh, this scene is like I really really like. Yeah, yeah. Um what do you guys think of Marco in this scene? 
Because we get two moments from him where um, Cassie says, not that any of you care, but we'll be killing thousands of defenseless Yerks right along with them. My God, you mean we'd be killing Yerks? Marco said with a straight face. That's, that's unthinkable. No one laughed. And then a little later, she's saying, you know, self-defense is justified on like murdering people, killing slugs, Marco corrected, killing Yerks when they're defenseless, Cassie continued. Yeah, I I don't know. I think it is, you know, it's Mighty Marco a little bit, right? Mm, say more about that, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely, it's like the most extreme version of Marco that we ever see. And we often see it in conversations with Cassie, where Cassie's making a moral claim and he's coming down on the other side of it. And there's definitely a part of me that wants to look at the sort of the doyless point of view, just like, the authors want the counterpoint. And so they're giving the more extreme version like to Marco to oppose Cassie. But I also do wonder, I think he's probably, I think he's pretty uncomfortable when she goes on moral rants and maybe that pushes him to a more extreme version of his views. That's interesting. Yeah. To me, the like the straight face, no one laughed bit makes him feel meaner or feel more mighty. Mm. Right. Like, you know, yeah, that's interesting. This argument is so good. The th- another thing that Cassie brings up that is a thing that I think that we've touched on a little bit, but I'm not sure the Animorphs have ever debated this directly, is what Cassie's not just saying, some Yerks are good because they are in the peace movement. She says, some of the Yerks and controllers are just kids like us. They never had a choice. They participate or they're eliminated. And mm-hmm. it's not like they get the information they need to make an informed decision. If you'd been raised since birth on empire propaganda, you'd fight to take over Earth too. Mm-hmm. Which is like, yeah, that's legit. Like, yeah. we've, we've talked about that. And like, I don't think the Animorphs have ever given such a full-throated defense of your humanity. Yeah, and there's... The question of whether they're combatants or not when they're in the Yerk pool, like there are no Yerks who are non-combatants. Like I remember when we were talking mm-hmm, about the, mm-hmm. the jacuzzi in book six, I think Jeremy was the one who wrote in and was like, yeah, but is it really like killing in a non-combat situation? It's more like killing spies. Like they are here on earth only to infest. And I think some of the animals make that point in this scene, but there is no way really to be a Yerk who is not a part of the war. Like even the peace movement, like they've sort of opted out in some ways, but they don't have a civilian society. Right. As far as we know, right? I mean, yeah. Because we have speculated before that maybe this is like the war guild are the ones who go out and reproduce in <laughs> order to invest, but then actually there are like some peaceful ones back at home. And maybe. we see the peace movement here being, you know, a significant percentage of the Yerk, or not a significant, but like there are a number of them and they have plans and they're significant enough that Visser 3 knows about them and is, I mean, yeah. They're not non-combatants, though. Like, you can say maybe there are Yerks. I mean, the Yerks on the homeworld, I guess, are not part of the war, but they're kind of a different society at this point. They're completely cut off. And we we haven't seen any evidence, really, of any part of the Yerk empire that's not fighting this war. And, you know, so that means you can say all Yerks are combatants, but that does raise the thing that Cassie brings up, where they're not informed, they don't have a choice, they can't choose to go to this war. Some of them get the opportunity to join the peace movement. You could say that because the peace movement exists, that means that they all are culpable for not joining it if they don't. But yeah. Well, it's also interesting in a book about Tobias's ability to choose that you get Cassie defending Uh the the Yerks having no choice, right? Because like, 
I guess maybe that's almost what Tobias is saying. Like the Yerks are still choosing to be Yerks, yeah. even if they don't know Tobias they're choosing. Tobias is arguing her. against her in his revelation yeah. at the end. Yeah. The Yerks are choosing to infest. They don't have to do that. And if you, even Cassie, like she convinced Aftran being a Yerk is wrong, right? Like mm-hmm, infesting mm-hmm. people, if, if infesting people is what being a parasite means, it's wrong. And Aftran believes her, right? Yeah. So like the Yerks who agree with that moral point of view cannot do what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, I think in one of our comments, maybe someone pointed out recently that they wondered how it was determined which Yerk went inside a new controller. Mm. Like they're all in the pool. You force somebody's head down. How do the Yerks know which of them gets to go in? And is it a hierarchy? Is it just the strongest gets to go in an ear and the weakest, like just going to live in the Yerk pool? But I wonder too, if that would, would give us any more information about how much the Yerks who are infesting controllers want to be there mm-hmm. as opposed to being scripted to do it. It just, you know, it's stuff we don't know about the Yerks. Right. Can you just kind of like be a lazy Yerk who, a, a Yerker lurker <laughs> yeah. at the bottom of the pool? <laughs> Yerker lurker. Love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like there's some intentionality about who infests who. At least we've seen controllers where it was like, yes, I was intended for this host. Right. And we've seen some stuff um, from that, that guy in eight who was like, I got better assignments than this other Yerk that but, I'm... But does that mean yeah. this or three is promoting you? Right? Like, because that <laughs> sort of would yeah. leave the door open to what Gray's saying. Like, yeah. So, yeah, but that does... That doesn't mean that there can't be Yerks who just stay in the pool and don't try for these things. It seems like there are more Yerks than hosts, so that would be an option. But that also means that if they're blowing up the Yerk pool, they're blowing up the ones who chose not to go to hosts. So Right. Yeah. One, Which uh, is what Visa 3's plan is to blow up the yeah. Yerk peace movement Yerks. Yeah. yeah. One, one other thing really fast that I wanted to bring up about that just debate as to whether they should blow up the Yerk pool is one of Jake's arguments as to why they should do this is that during World War II, we bombed factories, highways, railroads, even regular cities. Just because someone's not wearing a uniform or carrying a weapon doesn't mean they're not fighting a war. Hey, buddy, then we had a junction and decided that you shouldn't do that and that that's, in fact, bad and a war crime. So twice in this book, World War II got brought up in a way where I was like, hey, I know we visited briefly, but your historical accuracy is like not great and also very one-sided because, hey, no, don't blow up Dresden. Like, what are you talking about? Well, it's also, you're bringing up an interesting point. I thought the exact same thing and I was like, okay, but like the Yerks are not abiding by the Geneva Convention. So like, and like, mm. do the Andalites have some kind of equivalent? Like, what is the, you know, I don't know what you, from a Jake the General point of view, I don't know what you're supposed to do in that situation. Probably you say, I'm going to do what humans do and abide by these rules, right? Especially when there are a lot of humans at stake. Because the question isn't yeah. just, do we kill a bunch of years? It's, do we also kill the human hosts, a lot of which are involuntary? Yeah, exactly. The thing, so Rachel talks about it later, and this is... This is very much like, this is a really, a really interesting Rachel moment. And I know you had some objections to it, Ted. So I think it'll be, it'll be interesting to get into. Because 
Oh yeah, they're all they're they're down in the tunnel. I think Axe is digging and everyone's really tense and and Tobias is like, maybe we're in too deep and we know it. And Rachel at first is like really defending this. She's like, don't talk like that. After tonight, it's going to be different. We'll fry the yerk pool, the balance will tip, we'll drive them out. She was getting excited again, the way she does when she talks about the fight. But she sounded a little desperate too, like she needed to convince me and herself. Then what? I asked. We could be together. She paused. All of us, I mean, do normal stuff. And uh, Tobias is like, well, what if it's never over? There are only six of us. Sure, maybe we pull this off today, but it doesn't change our numbers. There are only, still only six of us. One, two, three, four. Stop it, she yelled suddenly. Tobias, I can't get the image out of my head. The way it will play out tonight. A yerk pool full of hosts. Humans and Horkvajir. They smell natural gas. They feel it pouring in. They look around, up, confused, puzzled. They start to worry, panic. The smell gets so strong they can't breathe and they know, they know natural gas can blow. They run, too late. Suddenly, kaboom. A scorching, burning fireball destroys everything it touches. They're vaporized. Cassie was right. They're yerks, I said. They're humans too. Like it's, that coming from Rachel is really like, I mean, I do think it's a thing where like, it has to come from Rachel because she's the one least likely to think this. Maybe her or Marco. I mean, I think it would be too far coming from Marco, but like it felt real to me coming from Rachel because she is so emotionally driven when it comes to battle. And she. Oh, because and she's not she's not killing them one by one. Yeah. She's, she's laying a trap to blow them up in an explosion. And that's, yeah. that is different to her. I've, and I've, she's I've, also not being active right now. Right, mm, yeah, back and having time to think about what they're doing in a way that she normally doesn't. Right, usually lunch yeah. in, and then usually she's a grizzly bear and she's killing a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. But she's like standing guard, she's waiting, she's anxious. Tobias is down a hole, she doesn't know what's happening. And I think it's interesting that what really pushes her buttons is Tobias is about to count to five and not to six. Uh, right, Cassie's not there, he's not counting to six this time. And I actually really loved this moment. I, I understand, like, it does kind of, it rings false to the Rachel we've seen in a few of the more recent books. No. Well, I think the Rachel bit works. I just think, I didn't realize Tobias was so distant from being sympathetic to this point of view yeah. that he would he would take his hatred of Taylor out on all of the innocent humans in the yerk pool. Like, yeah. that, that moment doesn't feel earned because after you stop reading, it's like, Cassie was right. They're yurks, Tobias said. They're humans too. And then at the end, it's like, they're yurks, that's all. Mm. Right? And he, and he has this whole thing about thinking about how Taylor, you know, like, every day there were more human slaves. It was my first thought in the morning and the last thought before I slept. You know, they killed my father who I never knew. This whole, this whole monologue that he has where he's like, Tobias on the warpath didn't feel in character for me. Mm. And like, that combined with having Rachel go so far as to be like a Cassie yeah. replacement. It's like, it's, it felt jarring, but yeah, I, I like I, the Rachel thing. I do. I'm especially like hearing what you have said about it. Anyway, I cut you off. Great. Please continue making your point. No, that was actually exactly what I was going to say. Just that the Tobias moment feels weird. The Rachel moment feels real. And it's a really, for me, this is how I think of Rachel as, you know, she's definitely the warrior, but she also really understands the context in a way that I think sometimes has been ignored recently, especially yeah. in the recent books where it's just Mighty Rachel. And I really loved seeing that nuance in her again and bringing back that, yes, of course she's a warrior. She is their, you know, she's their barbarian. She's the heavy hitter. But she understands people really well. And I think it, this was a good example 
how she, when she's not playing off of Cassie, you know, when she's kind of standing in for both of them, she can, you know, grow into that role a little bit and, and bring a little bit of that heart. And I love seeing that. I do agree that the Tobias stuff felt off, but the Rachel stuff I loved. Yeah. And I feel like Cassie not being there means that she can't sort of outsource the conscience to Cassie yeah. and then go where she's pointed. So before the part that I read, they're debating this whole thing. Rachel let out a small roar. She rolled her huge head from side to side. I'm sick and tired of this. Are we doing the right thing? Self-doubt crap. The Yerks are killing people. They're destroying Earth. Hello, what's gotten into you guys? If someone starts shooting up your town and you shoot back in self-defense, do you ask if it's justified? And that's before she goes on this whole thing about like, I can't get it out of my head, these people in the pool knowing they're going to be blown up. And I think what's going on there is like, this is the debate she's having with herself. And she hates having this debate. Like she doesn't want to have to think about this. She wants to be in a battle where she can feel good about attacking someone. And I think what you were saying about her not being active at the moment, Gray, is like totally right. Like the fact that she's just standing there, like preparing to do this horrible thing to all of these people. And Cassie's not there to sort of condone it by her presence. So she has to start thinking about it. And I mean, she does have a conscience. She just, it usually isn't her role to like, have to pay so much attention to it and she hates it. Yeah. Yeah. The point about her being idle and about and about outsourcing to Cassie, yeah. that's really good. It's also like it provides some consequentialist defense of the action that Cassie takes earlier. Because like I sort of feel like she's not being a good soldier by stepping out of the mission. Um mm, and like the we can talk about how the ending works with that. But like it's sort of like I love Cassie, but part of me is like if the animorphs are going to do this you need every, you need all six of them there. But the fact that she's like, I'm drawing a line here, it does affect her teammates. They aren't yeah. like, well, Cassie can make her choices, right? So the fact that it destabilizes Rachel in this way speaks to the good of what Cassie did. I mean, I think I don't have your issue with her stepping out on the team in this case. I think that she has a moral obligation to not, because this isn't like, I'll be on this team even though they do things I disapprove of and maybe I can shift them in one direction. This is like, are you going to take part in this specific action that you believe strongly is wrong? It's not like she's going to be able to like make it less wrong by being there. It's not like a Shouldn't change she do everything inside. she can to stop it if it's wrong? Like, you know. That's a different question. Yeah. So the question of like, because to me, staying back enough. To me, staying back is like I'm going to keep my hands clean yeah, in kind of a yeah, selfish yeah. way. Whereas she should be like doing everything right. she can to like sabotage and the mission. Of course, the way it turns <laughs> out, right? Like she doesn't keep her hands clean at all. But well, we can talk about that. Right. Later. I just want to double down on the like the Tobias moment being weird because mm -hmm. what kicks off this Rachel thing is Taylor is being an ass to everyone, calling Tobias weak and. Tobias thinks to himself, this whole plan, it's got Yerk fingerprints all over it, but mm -hmm. we're on board. And then he reaches out to Rachel privately being like, is this a good call? Like, are we doing the right thing? And that sets this whole scene in motion. And then by the end of it, Rachel is like, they're humans. And Tobias is like, you know what? I've gotten over all of my doubts about this being the right thing. Turns uh -huh. out Yerks are bad. And so like, here's my like specific complaint. He basically like, without any self-awareness, thinks, mm -hmm. here is a list of the crimes the Yerks have committed. This is a justification for mass murder. Mm -hmm. Instead of being like, well, 
Rachel has a point and I have these doubts, but Taylor's right there and she's looking at me and she's going to know if I'm weak and I'm going to be oh, strong, right? Like that would be that's, that's like, justified. That's yeah. like way more what his character is going through here. So like mm-hmm. this thing, this thing where he's like harboring this secret, like, you know, I mean, we've seen genocidal Tobias before, but we've never seen it from his point of view. And this does not count as like fleshing out his character in that way. <laughs> it's just like not as good. Um, yeah, you're right. They could have sh- like shored up that decision a little bit better. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to complain about it too much because I really like No, because this book is very I've, well done. I've come around on the scene respects. overall. Yeah. 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 And I think the characters are really done well done in this in this book. And Gray, you're totally right. I think uh, this might just be repetitive, but like this is Rachel. Like this is Rachel with subtlety and like intensity and aggression, but a conscience and an ability to think about things. And she feels like a real person and she's so much more herself than she was even in 42, where like that 42 was just kind of, I mean, it wasn't terrible. Was she anyone? She wasn't. She was a generic animal. Yeah. She sometimes had some Rachel-like things, but like this is so much more of an exploration, even though it's just a few scenes with her prominent in them. Yeah. Do we want to talk about Cassie at the end? Let's talk about it. Yeah. I'm Cassie. I am destroyed by it. Like even more so having had this conversation. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. woof. So okay, so here's here's (laughs) what I was just thinking. It's kind of like if you take this not just as like a the animorphs do a bad plan and Cassie has to get them out of it Mm -hmm. type thing. If you take it more as like a morality play of like Tobias and the other animorphs being tempted to do this really bad thing Uh and coming back from the brink, right? Like Tobias They don't even. They they never decide to. Exactly. Exactly. So so what happens is Tobias is like, I'm gonna come out of this stronger. He like finds his own inner strength and that's gonna push him forward through this action. And like tactically it's a mistake. Taylor betrays them and they're all going to die, right? But Uh like they never like you said, they never come back from that brink. And then you know, by the grace of Cassie, they are saved. Yeah. And when they go to find out what has happened, they go through this like, you know, horror movie scene with like all of the bodies lying in the corridors and they're like, oh, the police are coming. We don't know what went on. Let's leave. And Tobias is like, I hear someone crying. And he goes and he finds Cassie. And I should I should look up exactly what he says. Um, yeah, so there are at least half a dozen bodies, human bodies. So these are hu- human controllers, and they have been, they're, they're dead, right? I mean, all of them. No, um, it does oh, say no, they no, were sorry. alive. They, they were, were alive, alive barely. Barely. Oh. Um, they will probably die soon. Right. And I thought it was interesting. They were alive, but their yurks have come out of their heads for some reason. Like, it was all very weird. That doesn't um, usually even happen. But that usually means dying, right? Yeah. You're explaining a dying controller, right? That's why I think they're dying. But yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So so they're they're dying. And then Tobias finds Cassie. She had turned off the gas and saved our lives. She had done this. And and so it's just like this scene is so well written because Tobias is going in to like get to the bottom of it. And Rachel says, we got to get out of here. We're not going to figure this out, at least not now. And Tobias is like, no, I have to figure out what happened. And when he finds Cassie, he says, Uh, Come on, Cassie, we have to get out of here. It's okay. Everything's okay. Her sobs stopped. Halting half gasps took their place. She turned in my arms, turned so that she stood and faced me. Her eyes, red and wet, stared up at mine. Salt streaks dried on her face. No, she said, it will never be okay. And then the last chapter is Tobias and Rachel decompressing. Mm -hmm. So, so the Animorphs are going to do this awful thing. Cassie saves all of their lives. So the war is going to continue. 
Tobias tries to offer her comfort and she says she cannot take it. It, it is not okay, right? This is the Cassie from telling the fox it's going to be okay in book 19, like yeah. acknowledging this pain that can never heal, right? And then in the next chapter, by the end of the book, Tobias is like, you know what? You've got to, you just got to make choices and live. And he has this kind of like, more kind of like a warrior or soldier persona of like, you know what, you make choices in a fight and you stick to your guns and you keep moving. And it's like the Animorphs are willing to cross this line that Cassie isn't. And that's Mm -hmm. so well illustrated Mm -hmm. by how they, how at least Tobias and Cassie respond to the end of the book here, right? Cassie's broken as Tobias is getting stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it also illustrates Rachel too, right? Because as they're decompressing at the end, Rachel's the one who explains to Tobias how Cassie's doing. So she's trying to say, you know, Taylor's not your responsibility. And (laughs) Rachel says, bless her heart. This is Rachel getting a little less nuanced and being a little more the Rachel we've been seeing recently. I knew we had to dig that tunnel. It turns out I was right, but for the wrong reasons. If we hadn't gotten involved with Taylor, Cassie wouldn't have known about the plan, wouldn't have talked to Taywell, and wouldn't have worried about us. But she did, and it opened up a course of events that couldn't have occurred otherwise. It ended up saving the year peace faction. It was a good investment. Cassie battled a bunch of humans alone, Tobias says. You're saying that was a good thing? Of course not, Rachel said emphatically, but it was the lesser of two evils. Oh, I mean, maybe, but does Cassie think that? Because I bet Cassie doesn't think that. So I don't actually know that this is Rachel having less nuance. It kind of feels to me like this does feel like the Rachel we've seen the whole series where she doesn't do introspection very comfortably. And like, I think this is an interesting insight into her, actually. She's like, I like relying on instinct. My instinct told me we had to do this. And then she's coming up with sort of a retroactive justification for why, even though her understanding of the situation was faulty, her instinct was correct, which strikes me as like, it is very Rachel. It's very I don't Rachel super and a little follow, disturbing. I don't super follow the logic of yeah. what she's saying, but I think that's a good take on her character. Yeah. I mean, right, so it, the, the last thing that she says is, like, the past is the past, let it go, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, there's very much this thing of, like, Rachel and Tobias have each other, the secluded beach hangout, you know, mm-hmm. they get to both be human and together, right? Uh-huh. And it's like, they have each other, so it's like you can forget about the other stuff. Like Uh that's kind of what this chapter feels like to me in a way. It's like, it's so interesting how it's like Tobias thinks like, what happened to Taylor? I guess I'll never know. Maybe the voice, the voice in my head is gone for now, but maybe it'll come back. Uh I get to be strong and safe. And the thing, like it's such a good Tobias capstone, but then like what the Animorphs as a team went through in this book is totally unresolved. Right. Like it's like, it's wild to me now that like how much, Because, like, the story is, like, Tobias is brought to the edge of darkness and comes back, plays out. But then what happens with Cassie and Jake and the rest of the Animorphs? Like, we don't see them dealing with it. We just see Tobias and Rachel dealing with it. And there's this, there's this very, like, metaphorical passage. They're sitting on the beach. A twig blew across the surface of a rock, swept along by the wind. I reached out to catch it. Rachel moved to stop it, too. Our hands collided gently. I took her hand. The twig blew past us and fell into a crack. It's like, okay, is that Taylor and they're letting her go? Or is that Cassie and they're letting her down? Yeah. Like, or is it their past choices which are now beyond their reach and they have to just let it go? I mean, yes, it's many things. 
But for Cassie, yeah, it feels like she's in the middle of an arc now. And it's kind of cool that like, like we saw in 41, we didn't really see any of this in 42 because 42 was like complete fluff. But at the beginning of 41, suddenly they have a mission like a lot of missions they've had recently. And Cassie like loses it at the end. And Jake's really surprised. He's like, why now? Why is she so disturbed about causing these deaths now when she's caused lots of death? And, but it does feel like it's really disturbing to her. And then in this one... It so, goes farther. Yeah. I shouldn't I shouldn't be cutting you off. I think you're almost at the end of what you're saying. And you're not gonna <laughs> like what I'm about to say. But let us remember that not four books ago, Cassie had to fight a version of herself that was an ant. <laughs> you know She's been through some stuff. That that did not feel like it had a lot of un, like a strong emotional through line to anything else. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna say. I mean, poor Cassie and all, and I'm glad she's taking precautions with the putting the thing in the freezer, but like, all right, let's not give that book too much credit. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like 39 was a really wasted opportunity, sorry, Ted, to explore this thing that we're now seeing emerge with Cassie now in like 41 and now in 43, where like, seems like she's a reapproaching the place where she was in 19, only worse, where yeah, she yeah. like is having trouble going on. And I wonder well, where we're going to see that go. We got a Cassie book next. Yeah, so it's I, be I hope that they, they deal with some of that. Yeah, because it's Rachel and Tobias have each other. I hope Cassie and Jake have each other right now. It seemed like at the end of 41, maybe he was going to try to be there for her more. I don't know how that's working out. I mean, they, uh, Rachel does say that Jake went to, to check on her. He took her home last night hmm. and I stopped that by this morning. So she, you know, there's she's getting some support, I guess. Uh-huh. I feel like there are a lot of other things in this. Yeah, I know. I'm just, I, I don't know if there are any dangling threads. Can, do, okay. can we talk about Taylor? Yeah, let's talk about Taylor. I love Taylor. I'm so glad she came back. She's such a good villain. I just, everything she does is like awesome and evil. And I love to hate her. She has a little bit of that Rachel effect where like she's always really like well put together. (laughs) Except (laughs) in that one moment at the end when she's covered in like taxon poop. And Tobias (laughs) is like, actually you're gross. And she's like, ha ha, I'm gross and evil. And then she runs away. (laughs) That felt like... That's the moment at which he's able to like see through her because she doesn't look beautiful, or maybe it's the yeah, other way around. Yeah, I mean, it is like, a little bit. She doesn't bit... look beautiful because he's seeing through her. Yeah, it's making her beauty like I guess it's it's well, an it's a symbol of her like false allure. Yeah, I think so, and also her her power. Mm-hmm. She, I think she's a very she's a very charismatic person, mm-hmm. and so the fact that she's physically off putting, he he at least thinks to himself like, well, you know, looks aren't everything. But wait, I know her personality, and it's terrible. (laughs) Um, I would just like to read what I think is the best, it's like one of the best villain schemes ever. So, okay, so this bit where Tobias rejects her offer. Uh Uh-huh. They're racing back through the Taxon Tunnel, getting to the the gas pipe, and she's ready to, like, ignite the thing and blow it up. And Tobias is like, oh, you're betraying us you know, we were going to have 20 minutes to get away. And she's like, you believed me, (laughs) right? And it's like, and Tobias is like, I did and I do. I lied. (laughs) You can't blow a hole in that pipe because you know know that if we die in this explosion, you die too. Her lips twisted into the now familiar fiendish smile. Pure (laughs) yerk and proud of it. Wrong, Andalite. You forget that I am not bound to this body. 
I am the yerk inside, and a skull entirely replaced, bone by bone, by heat-proof, blast-proof, polymer, protects me. This body will burn, but I will survive. Amazing. Yeah. Taylor Amazing. is literally an indestructible voice in her head. It's so I cool. Just, they, okay, so one, as we've discussed before, the Yerks have incredible plastic surgery because she is still beautiful, even though every bone in her head has been replaced somehow. One by one. How many bones are there in your head? I thought the skull was like mostly a single piece. Am I wrong? Okay, I I'm think it, like, yeah, it fuses at some point. It's a bunch of different bones and then yeah. they fuse. So like, I don't know. Like but your I, jawbone is separate, but like, okay. Also, your skull is not, does not completely surround your brain. No, so like what I'm imagining is like, There you are know 22 what? bones in the skull. Wow. Human bodies are disgusting, but just morphs are gross, taxons are gross. Human bodies, not that much better. Um, no, but like, I, what I'm imagining is like one of those like robot movies where like the faceplate comes off and it's just like a, an alien inside like yes. moving body where the head is just like it's just a, some sort of like robot cage made out of polymers so that she can have this be completely isolated from the blast that will kill the rest of her body. But it does not make any sense. Like <laughs> it's nonsense. Complete nonsense. Yeah, I want to know what she, yeah, when she like floated off down the tunnel at the end, did she just plan to have her body burn up? Like, oh, what? yeah, yeah, she was just gonna, she was just gonna have her body burn up. That's really surprising from her, actually, considering how much she wanted to stay in this like specific beautiful body. But not anymore, right? We get, no. we get that. So one, she's proposing to, to take over Tobias. Oh, right. But two, that's we right. get that moment in the mall where, Taylor the girl fights back and is saying, no, no, no. And oh, Tobias realizes yeah. that when he last saw Taylor in 33, it, we get we got that moment of horror where she keeps switching what pronoun she's using. And it's like the girl and the yerk have fused. And here Tobias is like, oh, weird. Taylor the yerk is now completely dominating and Taylor the girl is being left behind. So uh -huh. I don't know that we fully get an explanation for it, but it seems clear that yerk Taylor has decided to move to a different host. And so she's taken this precaution that lets herself mm. explode herself. Like, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's when we have the thing where the girl fought back and gave them that warning they should really have listened to. It made me immediately like retcon 33 and be like, oh, so it wasn't the girl and the yerk. It was just that the yerk was having sort of this identity crisis where she sort of it, I don't know, they thought that they were sort of all, the girl also. I think that's more but, plausible. But yeah, but then it, Tobias you can read it was, either way. Then Tobias did say something like, oh, they're not working together anymore. So I was like, oh, okay, maybe it just changed. So I don't know. Yeah. Also, Taylor's plan in general didn't make a ton of sense. Just as a whole, but like at some point, and it does not have to be right now, we can finish talking about Taylor, but at some point I very much want to talk about the Animorphs and not how they make the decision, but what their decision is, because it is bad. Start to finish, doesn't, it, there's no good part of it. They're making bad decisions again. Please stop. Well, what else do we have to say about Taylor? <laughs> um, she is a great villain. I mean, she has a lot of the like, she does a lot of the things that the evil overlord list tells us not to do. She monologues, she has these overly elaborate plans that like can be easily turned off from the source and therefore completely useless and like her lies are very transparent it's all kind of dumb and she's so irrational in like a really fun way right like 
just the, the offer she makes to Tobias is ridiculous, right? She's like, I guess this is almost the, the same thing that I love about Visser 1. Visser 1 is always playing their cards. Like, they're playing all the cards they have constantly, right? It's like, like I'm just going to improvise my way out of the situation. And Taylor's, like, even bolder. And her plans are worse. <laughs> but you just got to respect Not her. Much. Going up to Tobias in Taxonmorph being like, hey, buddy, why don't you demorph and we will rule a Yerk democracy together? <laughs> By the way, I just knocked out all your friends. Yeah, and also, remember that Visser 3 was involved in this plan. She made <laughs> pitch this plan to Visser 3 and get him to agree with agree to it. So I will capture one Andalite bandit, not infest that Andalite bandit or kill it, just, like, convince the Andalite bandits to go along with this very elaborate plan. <laughs> It's a very Visser 3 plan, right? Like, I, I will not just kill the Andalite bandit that I have in my control. Yeah, I will instead put together this elaborate trap for them. Whoa. Although he wasn't there, which is weird. I feel like he's always there. So. Yeah. Right. I, I do like the idea that they came up with this plan months ago. And then Taylor was like, yeah, but if I get exploded by mistake, I'll die. <laughs> And then Visser 3 is like, okay, okay, we'll just replace every part of your skull so you won't die. <laughs> <laughs> they go through yeah. months and months of surgery, and it's like, all right, Taylor, it's been 10 books, you're ready to go again. I'm so impressed with her that she managed to stay or work her way back into Visser 3's good graces after yeah. her complete failure with Tobias in 33. Good point. Well, I actually don't... So Rachel comes to the conclusion that Taylor was working with Visser 3 all along. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's impossible that Taylor was playing it straight the entire time. Because we don't see Visser 3 come back around. Uh And when Tobias is getting rescued, humans are killing Hork-Bajir to get him out of there. So, like, they really leaned into the ruse. And it's not like they're above ruses, but... We don't get any real evidence that anybody besides Taylor was running this operation. So maybe Taylor wasn't trying to destroy Visser 3, or maybe she was. Maybe, maybe this was, was how to get to back take... into good graces. Yeah, maybe she was trying to, like, look what I can do. I'll destroy the Andalite Bandits and the Yurk Peace Movement, and either Visser 3 would forgive her, or she could be like, hey, Council, look what I did. Right. So, yeah, you're you're right. Like, I feel like if Visser 3 had been involved, he would have been there he would have stepped in sooner because he's very impatient and bad at plans. And also there would have been a bunch of like Herfajir waiting to kill the Animorphs when they came out of the gas tunnel that didn't explode. Right. It's a good point. And actually that kind of explains a lot about why this is the like even dumber than a normal plan. Let's talk about the plan. <laughs> I don't see what your problem with it is, Gray. Can't you just fill a miles long tunnel with natural gas and then have that natural gas leak out into a dome under a large dome under the city, the size of like multiple football fields and then blow it up and not do any lasting damage or um, have anything go wrong? You can do any of that. I mean, this city is already structurally unstable (laughs) as there is a cavern the size of several football fields that can fit like a spacecraft in it just under the heart of the city. So like, I don't think it's going to take a lot to, like, collapse, you know, your, like, cultural district. But also... If, if you eat up all of the air inside a giant empty space underground... Uh, sure. That's uh-huh. really structurally safe, right? Very. And then what happens when you, like, somehow explode that, even though the thing about natural gas is that it, like, dissipates like all other gases? So, unless well, it you're... seems like there was a lot of gas because if 
as soon as they start pumping the gas, they can like ride it like like a water slide down the tunnel <laughs> that they've created. Okay, wasn't there a manhole in the ceiling though? Like why did uh, the gas just go out there? Because it's it's it flows like water, right? Oh, it doesn't flow up. That's how right. gas works. Right. Very much how heavy. gas works. It's a heavy gas, yeah. So dumb. Yeah, also, even after the gas gets turned off, isn't there still a lot of it there? Yeah. Would it still be ignited? Well, uh. But also, like, then her plan is, okay, so first of all, we're going to, like, pump a bunch of gas into this cavern and explode it. Sure. But what we're going to, the way we're going to do that is we're going to convince our enemies to morph into a taxon, dig a tunnel from the natural gas pipe line question mark into the cavern which i really do not understand how those two things are connected but somehow they are mm -hmm. we're going to trust that the taxon instinct to dig is going to take them from this manhole sewer into the gear pool which mm -hmm. again wh what are you talking about that's the it, if the taxon is getting nutrients from the dirt it could dig in any direction. Why is it digging towards the year? It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. And then she had a taxon in captivity. Why didn't she just get it to dig? Choose that one. Why are you using it? Like you have taxons. It doesn't make any sense. Like, and I understand why she wanted to involve the Andalite bandits, quote unquote. But like, you'd think the Animorphs would have been like, wait, you have one. It's right there. We're going to talk about the Animorphs. I'm still on Taylor and her stupid plan. Oh, okay, okay. Again, I don't understand how the sewer is connected to the natural gas pipeline that connects to the earth pool, and that somehow that pressure from the natural gas pipeline continues enough for them to get that much gas and then explode it. But whatever, let's take that as red. Rather <laughs> than using her, like, friend taxons, she's getting the animals involved to do the work and then get them there to explode them instead of just, uh, getting them there to explode them. Like, it's just, it's, it's one of those plans where it's like, if any one of these things went slightly wrong, all of it would be terrible. And it's nice that like most of it seems to go pretty right all the way right up until the end. But like, does it make a ton of sense that all of those things happened correctly? It's just, a, it's a bad plan. I do think part of it was like, why would they need, we want them to morph taxons. Why would they need them? I do want to talk about the taxon morph because that was interesting. Because it was your terrible. favorite? Mm. Now I want the Taxon Morph book, but it's like the Great Escape. Like they need to, they <laughs> yes. need to. It's like twenty nine again. They need to rescue the York Peace Movement. Mm. The only way they can do it is through Taxon tunnels. You know, if they'd acquired Taxons back in seventeen, they could have saved themselves a lot of trouble as moles. Mm. Such a good point. I like how Tobias re references that. He's like, it would take us forever to dig, and then it would be a tiny tunnel. <laughs> I was like, right, because all you can think of are moles. And Taylor was like, I got you covered. And then her idea is so much better. All right. Should we get into the taxon of it all? Oh, wait. Did you want to talk about the Animorphs? Oh, yeah. What, the Animorphs version of the plan. Yes, I do. One second. The Animorphs are teenagers, and I'm trying to give them credit. <laughs> but also, somebody who tortured one of your friends comes to you and says, just kidding. I've decided I like democracy. Why don't you help me make a democracy? No, don't do that. Why would you do that? It's clearly a trap. She's obviously lying to you. At some point, Tobias says, well, now she's on the side of democracy and peace. No, 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 no. She did not say that. 
She said democracy. Democracy <laughs> with a strong overtone of authoritarianism. So, like, let's not pretend that she's in the Yerk Peace Movement. She's not. She's lying to you. She's obviously lying to you. What's wrong with you that you just go along with this plan? It's terrible, man. When you're saying this, it occurs to me that this is incredibly 90s, that the teens would find democracy such a buzzword <laughs> that Taylor can just be like, I am transparently doing this for evil reasons, but also democracy. <laughs> and all the Animorphs are like, tell me more. It's a very good point. That's such a good point. <laughs> and there's all these things where Taylor's like, what I rule. And Tobias is like, but what about democracy? And you can tell he's like a little bit knowing that she's being disingenuous, but like also being like, but she's really going for democracy, right? Yeah, of course. I had a couple more thoughts about Taylor that I found when I was looking at my notes. Should I share them now or should I wait? Well, I would, let's go back to that. I would like to emphasize again, I'm a little upset that they didn't think more about destroying the city. Like, yeah. they talk about it as like a, but wouldn't we just blow up a city block? And they're like, okay, but Taylor said she knows just how much gas to add. And that's like, again, <laughs> This plan doesn't make any sense, but if it does, why do you trust Taylor? You shouldn't. You don't. I don't know. They did also didn't really have a, I don't know, any contingency plans for if she is lying to us and plans to kill us. Like, they didn't put any thought into that. Maybe Jake and Marco did that we didn't see, but yeah. I, there's no reason to think that they did, so. Yeah. Okay, more about Taylor. Oh, I had a couple of other Taylor thoughts. One of my thoughts was just, we talked a lot or the book 33 talked a lot about like the similarities between Rachel and Taylor. And we got like maybe a tiny bit of that. Like I, the scene where there's the scene where they're in um, the borders and uh, Tobias has morphed Taylor and he's like realizing how much power he has over the like guy behind the counter. And he's like, is this how Rachel feels all the time? Is this why she's so brave? Which was a really interesting, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm getting a little off the topic I was aiming for. Mm. Just that like, there's not a lot about comparing Taylor and Rachel in this book because in fact, they are not similar except in appearance. And it's much more like Taylor as a foil for Tobias with like the weakness and strength. And I'm glad it refocused there because I, I didn't feel like they were really finding much ground to explore with the Taylor-Rachel thing. Uh, yeah, on the other hand, I still, it's not really in the text, but something about Tobias wanting to submit to Taylor and like him coming back to how pretty she Ooh. is and how how easy it would be to like let her take over his life. I feel like it's attraction is probably too strong of a word, but there's some kind of compulsion to mm -hmm. like be with her that has kind of it's like is like a parallel in some way. Yeah, paralleling his relationship with Rachel. That's interesting. I like that. I don't know if I like it, but but of course, Rachel is a partner and like, yeah. like Taylor is <laughs> looking to villain. take over his yeah. brain. Yes. The other thing I wanted to say about Taylor is I really liked the insults that Rachel used for her at the beginning of the book, which I wish they'd remembered more that she deserves these insults. But she called her a creep, a jerk. She called her scum. She used very ungendered insults mm. to a point yeah. where it stood out to me. Mm. And here's like a very pretty girl who is very noticeable as a pretty girl to everyone talking about another, well, the Yerk isn't exactly a pretty girl, but is inhabiting a very pretty girl and just isn't bringing anything with like femininity or any, like she yeah. doesn't call her a skank. She doesn't do any of that. Like 
she doesn't go in that direction at all. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated that. It's a really good point. It actually stood out to me too in the first um, in the first moment where she does that and she's calling Taylor like a jerk and stuff. I actually had a moment where I was like, "Who is she talking about?" Right? Like this it's must be about a man. Right, because otherwise, like, she would obviously use gendered insults, and she doesn't. So who is this? And then I was like, oh, okay, I'm pleasantly surprised by that. I had the same experience, and it was really disturbing to me in terms of, like, oh, crap, I expect these gendered insults, especially about a young, pretty woman. Yay, internalized misogyny. Yeah. I totally get that. I didn't have that reaction. Interesting. Interesting. It it, it totally makes sense. It totally makes sense, but I didn't have the same experience reading it. Yeah. We also, another great detail about Taylor is mm-hmm. how when she has this like improvised booby trap cage and is giving Tobias the offer, she drinks tomato soup from a mug. <laughs> <laughs> that whole scene, they're in like a hovel on the outskirts of town that's like broken down except for this cage with super high tech like Dracon beam lasers. And then she's just sitting there drinking tomato soup. Like it was so <laughs> weird. There's just like so much good in this scene. So she says, you know, it's hard to get help from an Andalite who's dead. And Tobias is like, help? Yeah, and Rachel will pass up a sale at Express. Kryak will win the Nobel Peace Prize. A yerk slug will turn down a promotion. Come on, Taylor. <laughs> um, that was great. And then she gets really angry talking about how there she wants to, like the council makes her sick with all of the favoritism and stuff. And she gets really angry and then her guard comes back up. The spark in her eye made her look part politician and part actor, part trial lawyer and part scheming teenaged girl. It was a face shrouded in lies. <laughs> so good. Which I love. Oh, sort of a counterbalance to Rachel using very ungendered insults. Later, Marco calls her a she-yerk, which oh. I was like, what? That's yeah. not a so, thing. Yeah, that, but that also breezed by me as like a, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that is definitely not a thing. It's, I mean, it, for one thing, it's a conflation of the gender of the host and the gender of the mm-hmm. yerk, which is still sort of this open question. Do yerks even have gender? We have no idea. Uh, do they take on the gender of their hosts? But also, yerk is not a male term. You don't need to add she to it to make it applicable to even a female yerk. Yeah, that was real weird. I just, there's so many good details in this scene. It's amazing. But democracy, right? Right? <laughs> And also, if you don't believe a word she says, then why are you going along with her plot? Okay, and okay, but she, does, she does let him go, right? Which throws him for a loop, right? Like, yeah. that's kind of what sets him on the path. And he's like, all oh, his head is messed up about, like, oh, and he's emotionally entangled. And he does this thing where he's like, I actually loved this, and I bet you loved it too, Gray, when Tobias is like, oh, no, she did double-cross me. She put a tracking device on me. So oh, yeah. I'm going to morph flee to see if it's under my skin because I know if I'm more small and something's been implanted in me, I will be able to feel it. And I was like, that's so that smart. That was brilliant. That was smart. I was very impressed with that. Like, One great job. Last really smart moves in this. <laughs> Perhaps the only really smart <laughs> move. Uh, that was the time when they used morphing and I was like, good job. I learned rules and now the rules are being kept. And then there was another part where I was like, I learned rules and you are just ignoring them. And I hate it when that happens. It annoys me. Was I thought that when, part was cool. Was it when Tobias was morphing each part of his body from hawk to Andalite as he yes. did from Taxon? Yes. That 
listen, again, I had to learn these rules because it's technology. It's not magic. You can't just go between. And then he's like, maybe I can work from taxon to anamorph because look at me being like breaking the rules. No, no, no. You're so, you're so wrong, Gray. This is, this is in line with all of our headcanon that we've had so far. It it's is perfect. not. I think you're just upset because instead of writing somebody does morphing magic on your bingo card, you wrote Cassie specifically does it. Because this is the bias showing a capacity for morphing magic. And we've seen before, right, Cassie does the like whale with wings thing. It's like she demorphs and then starts remorphing again, right? Like Yes. And I was this outraged by that. So no, but so it makes sense. If the part of you ha if the Z space transfer has finished on part of your body. Why couldn't you be able to concentrate so good that you can start morphing those parts again? Oh, anything works! With my understanding of Z-Space, yes. Jenny, you're no. not helping. <laughs> Great, I are both upset with you right now. Great for invoking Z-Space at all. You're invoking Z-Space in a conversation where I'm trying to convince Gray of something. <laughs> no. Oh, man. <laughs> no to both of you. Incorrect. I refuse. All right. So there is an opening caper in this one. It's, uh, Ted mentioned, it's where Tobias saves a little boy from a sinkhole in the middle of a thunderstorm. And it was interesting from a couple of different uh, angles. He goes and like lands in front of the very worried father at the ranger station and like just talks to him. I guess he's like, this guy probably isn't a controller because He's worried about his kid. I don't know. He doesn't, he doesn't even think about he it. He doesn't even yeah. think about it. He I mean, just, he intentionally, he acknowledges that he's choosing not to think about it. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's clearly like he, Ted, I think you said he like wants to be a hero. He wants to be strong instead of weak, which results in him making some really bad decisions, which is debatable how much he achieves his goal there of being strong. That is. And it also is definitely pressing some like family buttons for him, which connects a lot to like what he thought about during his like being tortured in 33 and then also to Megamorphs 4 where we saw how terrible his family was to him and mm -hmm. yeah it kind of sets him up emotionally I guess for you know struggles yeah I mean what what do we think is going on because you were saying it pushes kind of like family stuff buttons for him it's also like the kid being trapped but I guess he doesn't know that the kid is trapped until he gets there like deciding to yeah. rescue him he actually has this really great moment where he's like, I see everything. My name is Tobias. You know, like, I'm going to come find you, Bobby McIntyre. Like, uh -huh. he has this whole, the forest is mine. Yeah, he wants I, to feel powerful. Yeah. Which I guess connects to, like... In my domain. Taylor wanting so much power, like, to be ruling over things. And yeah. he's a little bit tempted by that, maybe. And he rejects it. Yeah. Well, no, that's interesting. That actually connects to the, like the power theme a little more directly than I thought, mm -hmm. right? Because he does this thing and he's like, he does it to feel powerful and in control and mm -hmm. to be a hero, but he's also doing it because a boy needs saving. And he gets that, like, when he's captured and his wing is broken, when he's captured the first time because his wing is broken, he's not captured, when he's rescued mm. and his wing is broken, they, like, show him the newspaper and be like, look, you were a hero. Uh -huh. And he's kind of like, oh, crap, but, like, I've made things so <laughs> difficult for everybody, yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah. he's not like, yes, I am super bird, right? right? He right. doesn't, he's not, he's not in it for the power in the same no, way Taylor No, does. no, no. And that, yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting parallel in that he is in part doing it to 
not feel weak, but he has way better motivations. And that's maybe what makes Taylor's temptation to him not really a temptation because he's not really interested in power. Yeah. He's just interested in not being weak. Right. And he's using his power to a greater purpose. Yeah. 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 I don't know if there's more to say about the, the opening thing. It does definitely speak to how distracted he is by Taylor's voice in his head that he does this thing without thinking about the consequences. And he's, he's specifically shirking an Animorphs meeting also. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. I found it very horrifying. The like kid in a sinkhole, like yeah. water yeah. streaming towards him. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly the right decision for him to make. Like he saves this kid's life, Uh huh. but it's, it's almost, I don't know, it's sort of that one person versus putting his friends in danger. Yeah. That Very incautious. Very thoughtful. It's come up a couple times, but it's always interesting when it does. Mm-hmm. Right. And he'll put the whole mission at risk to save one kid, and he'll also blow up a bunch of innocent human hosts for the greater good, right? Like... I mean, there's something Axe says to Cassie uh, when Cassie's like, we can't do this. And she gives all these reasons. And Axe, Axe is like, these are some good points, but it would seem that your behavior is inconsistent on these points. <laughs> I love that. That was like the most, I it's really almost like too that. much defamiliarizing, like <laughs> human decision making. But I really yeah, liked it. Too much lampshading. Yes, we should talk about some more Axe moments. I had a favorite Axe moment. So we learn, we learn some things about Andalite culture, we learn that Axe did a research project as a young cadet, he says, not a risk, even though that's what it's called, on uh, what happens when someone is unable to control a morph. And there's a term for this physiological condition. The term is not all Sith. (laughs) Hashtag not all Sith. (laughs) Kylo Ren, he's fine. It, I'm sure it's not all Sith or something, but I read that and I was like, not all Sith? <laughs> this is the night. Okay, this is like 2000. They don't yet know this is going to be a hashtag. This is the 90s thing ever, but they... Uh, was very nice. This, however, not my favorite Andalite word that we learn in this book. <laughs> Just, which one was your favorite? Well, I don't have the thing pulled up. Do you guys have the thing pulled up? Oh, Oh, it's, um... I do, in fact. So, great. I would like you to read it, but I would just like to say, for those of you who tuned in to my, the recent Animorphology live stream, might have seen a certain change in my hairstyle, and I would just like to admit that I have dishonored, um, some Andalites that are very important to me, and I have, I am now suffering through the process that Gray is about to describe to you. That does explain a lot, actually, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Wow. We finished morphing and Axe trotted up beside me. His main eyes studied me. His stock eyes scanned the area around us. Then suddenly his tail snapped and zipped across the blue and tan fur on my chest. Hey, watch it. What are you doing? I am removing portions of your fur. We call it unsweet. I believe you say haircut. I must make you look less like my genetic, uh, genetic double. When an Andalite warrior is reprimanded for his conduct, Axe continued, a superior officer removes some of the offender's furs so that the transgression is not soon forgotten. In the ritual of unsweet, the wrongdoer is not punished in the traditional sense. He must live with the constant reminder of his error and the scrutiny of his peers. As his fur grows back, he is slowly redeemed until, finally, the incident is laid to rest and the warrior is whole again. Until my fur grows all the way back, I am going to be unsweet. So I definitely read it as, like, unsweet. 
<laughs> because it just looked so German to me. It does look very No, German. but it's the 90s, in which case it's definitely unsweet, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Though I, I think I did cut you off before the amazing joke or a funny thing that Axe says in that scene. He has this bit where Tobias is like, okay, so like, but why? Did I deserve that? Right, like he says, did I deserve the unsweet? And Axe is basically like, no, this is actually the only the only haircut I know. Like, this yeah. is all I can do. All I got is unsweet. I'm sorry, buddy. You're great. You're great. You didn't deserve this. Oh, I did that. Can we talk about the website that Axe is to? The part that I was gonna, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, the... Dumbest. Also, the best joke that Axe has ever made. It's so funny. Was Okay, we'll see. <laughs> you don't like it? <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. Maybe I don't remember what it is. He's, it's intentional self-deprecating humor. Self-deprecating yeah. humor, humor from an Andalite. <laughs> okay, so Axe is trying to go to this webpage, http colon slash slash www.earthisours.com. <laughs> Which, by the way, is available for purchase. Oh my god, we need it. Can I have it? Please, can I have it? You can buy it. You can it's buy it right now. It's not just like Taylor's business card, a picture <laughs> of the earth, and the sentence like, earth will be ours, and then a message box. No. Now it is? It will be, though, once Gray buys it. and What about, did you look up the other domain? Um, I clicked on the other domain, but because it didn't have the, uh, like, intro stuff it didn't go anywhere it just didn't find anything uh and i didn't care enough to type stuff what in. was it what was the other domain oh i think i think we need to read the scene to find out okay. we got a message the url cannot be found i do not understand if this address existed we would have located it axe explained uh axe man marco pointed to the flickering screen and sat and sounded out the address you typed earthisaurus.com. You made it a dino. It's Earth is ours. Perhaps 14 fingers are four too many, Axe said, being uncharacteristically funny. It's a good joke. It's like hilarious. saying, I got too many fingers for it your human keyboards. so out of character. I just couldn't believe that he would say that. What? He would never say that he had too many fingers. He's learning okay. different kinds okay. of humor. I think- This I is think his arc. His arc is he gets funnier. <laughs> I think the joke that he was actually making is like, he thought it was funny because it was so obviously untrue because 14 is so obviously the right number of fingers that like, he was surprised that everyone wasn't like, ha ha ha, you said it was too many, that's such a lie. No, Axe is genuinely funny, Jenny. I'm, I... That, sometimes, I don't know about, I don't know about this. I did, I did enjoy when they play 90s reference, Minesweeper and Solitaire. And you can Axis. still play those games. They don't come with computers anymore, Ted. It's really upsetting. I really miss Spider Solitaire, everyone. They're not playing Spider Solitaire. Okay, no, no. That's a very, like, Windows Vista thing and not at all a 90s thing. It was one of the, like, four games that used to always come with computers. Anyway, this time Axe's extra fingers somehow gave them an edge. So, you know, they come back around. That also doesn't make sense. How does it does not. Mind? You don't play Minesweeper with, with your, your fingers. fingers. That's a good solitaire. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, we wanted to talk about the taxon experience. Taxons! They're yeah. gross. They're so They're the gross. Also, they are inconsistently portrayed in this series, and it annoys me. Ooh, ooh. Tell me more. I'm, I'm signing up for this brand. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... 
the creature building and like species building in this series is not always consistent, which makes sense. I mean, the, the point is not like world building necessarily or like space opera. Let me tell you about this new species that we've interacted with. But we've seen the taxons in a number of places. One is as an enemy of the, um, as an enemy of the animorphs. And like, they're gross, they're huge, they fight good, like we don't like them, they're disgusting, fine. But we've also seen them in much more detail in the Andalite Chronicles, right? And we see a couple things about them in the Andalite Chronicles. One, we learn that they're good at the, um, like fine work, like they're good at, you know, spaceships and stuff. Okay, well, that's very interesting. We also learned that while many of them were voluntary controllers, which by the way, indicates a certain amount of agency and kind of ability to control your decision making, but that there's also a group of them that are rebels that don't want to become part of the Yurk Empire and are instead fighting off the Yurks on the taxons are portrayed, which we actually don't get in a lot of other species, right? We kind of, they're kind of um, like mono blocks of, of creatures. But the taxons, there's like, there's some rebels, there's some people who are voluntary controllers, fun. And we have seen in the past, including in the Andalite Chronicles, that the taxons are very hungry all the time. They're driven by their hunger in a really interesting way, including being um, cannibals, right? One of theirs falls and they eat it. It will point out that most of what we saw was when one of theirs died, they ate their fallen comrade. And there are actually a lot of different ways kind of culturally to think about that. Like that may be a way to honor their fallen dead. It may not be like an insatiable hunger. They may also be scavengers that they, once something has fallen, they are much more, they, now they can eat it, right? It's dead. They can eat that, but not hunters as a distinction. And I make that distinction because in this fucking book, what we learn instead is that they're so hungry all the time that they take over the yerk inside their brain and make the yerk into a taxon, essentially, driven solely by its hunger. Which let me explain to you why that does not make sense. Because then, one, the taxons would be uncontrollable. They would be constantly eating everything around them. They do not have a human that has morphed them inside their brain controlling that hunger. So they'd be like constantly trying to eat the other taxons, the Hork-Bajir, the human controllers, I bet, a whole bunch. But also, and I think this is important, if you have a controller, voluntary or involuntary, that cannot be controlled by its yerk, you have a controller that cannot be brought to the yerk pool for the yerk to come out of its head and feed at the controller race. So you, basically what I learned from this is that they are in, they, they have taken over the yerk in their head and like somehow enough of the yerk remains that they still go back to the, to the yerk pool to feed every three days, but like not enough to control its hunger. doesn't make any sense with anything. Okay. We that annoyed. But that's what Taylor said. When she's trying to explain why she doesn't have any taxons as part of her conspiracy, and that's why the Andalite bandits, so-called, need to morph taxons, that's the only way to do it, that was probably a lie. I mean, yes, but it's also their experience when they morph taxons. Yeah. I do think morphing taxons, and also that's, that's what Elfinger does in the Andalite Chronicles, it seems similar it's to probably, But it's probably different from infesting them, right? There's probably some nuance in terms of the amount of control, right? Yeah. Like the Yurks aren't fighting instincts. They're dominating a mind. So like maybe there's some room for that to be different. Your point about taxons 
and the yurt pool is kind of blowing my mind though because they never talk about taxing controllers on oh, the pier yeah. right like there must be some entire other system but how does that work or is it Maybe like they have specific times of day when it's like this is when the taxing controllers like feed adult swim <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly but then why aren't they eating the yurks right i mean you eat, like they are mm. you know, the, the waters of the taxon homeworld right and they're insatiable like I'm imagining throwing a taxon into the yurk pool and having it be like a piranha going after a school of minnows. Like, I will eat all of these delicious, like, swarmy things. What if the, okay, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. What if the taxons are not individual, so we've only seen yurks con consistently controlling the same host. What if taxons are like, yurk goes out, yurk comes in. Taxon oh. is never free. But they're also voluntary controllers. Like, they must have enough mental capacity to realize if I eat a bunch of yurks in the pool now, I'll just get killed. Whereas if I wait, they'll give me a bunch of food. Mm. Will they? How? Seems like they do. Remember oh, no, there was wait. the thing in Visser when they were like, oh, it's time for the taxon feeding. No, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I've been thinking about this all wrong. I think your points are still really good, Gray. But right, so you're getting what the Animorphs and Elfingor experience are taxon instincts, mm -hmm. right? So taxons as like, toddlers or whatever <laughs> must be like this right but with years of life and instruction from like the mother mountain or whatever it's called the hive the hive, the mm -hmm. hive queen i don't know whatever whatever <laughs> it was on the taxon homeworld right the mind develops and probably there's more of like a like a a superego that can tell them to you know maybe don't eat everything all the time <laughs> right like so that seems plausible, right? We don't actually know what it's like to be a mature taxon. Okay, so did we have other thoughts about their experience as taxons? There was some weird stuff when Tobias was acquiring the taxon, where he like felt like <laughs> there was a scream of agony entering his mind. <laughs> the angry DNA. Yes, the angry DNA. He also had some the, feelings that about- That was clearly yeah. in Tobias's head. If we allow that, <laughs> Gray will not forgive us. I will not. I will absolutely not allow it. It was yeah, no. in his head. It's Taylor's fault. I hate it. Yeah, Tobias had some really strong feelings about, like, this taxon, because they jump into, like, a pit with the taxon, because the taxons always live in the floor. And Axe has to kill the taxon when it attacks Tobias, and he's like, oh, we better acquire it fast. I think I've mortally wounded it. And so they acquire it while it's dying, and it's, like, guts are spilling all over the floor. And Tobias has some feelings about how, like, this taxon only lives on in the DNA in him and Axe, which I can see that being a little bit of a weird feeling. Maybe that's why, you know, he imagined this scream. Can I just read some of the, the horror show here? Mm -hmm. I love these bits. Please. I hope our listeners love it as well. <laughs> so this is, again, Taylor being an absolutely incredible villain. She's like, I have the perfect morph for you all to acquire. It's a taxon. I just keep it in a dark pit and you guys can go get it. Like, just have fun. And Tobias and Andalite Morph both jump down into the pit and they're like, huh, where is taxon? <laughs> ah, agony shot up my arm. The taxon bit down hard. A thousand razor teeth shredded my flesh and muscle. He didn't sever my arm and have a quick snack. No, he sucked with iron jaws, pulling me in dragging me closer to his stomach. I swung my tail blade, but lost my balance on the smooth, curved floor. My hooves skidded wildly as the vile mouth chewed. I was caught in a slow-motion wood chipper, glowing red eyes inching toward me. I whipped my tail blade frantically, slashing the blackness, missing the taxon. The force of his jaws would rip off my arm. And then Axe saves him, and as Jenny mentioned, the taxon is dying. 
I could feel life draining from his body and the firm folds of bloated tissue collapsing like a torn hot air balloon. <laughs> There's one okay. thing where Axe like digs for too long and apparently a taxon, we learn, will doesn't get enough nutrients from dirt to actually like power itself, but it's so insatiable that it'll just keep eating and keep eating. And apparently it will keep digging until it just exhausts itself and dies. And Axe sort of goes into this trance where that's happening while he's in Taxomorph. And they have to clamp onto his flesh and drag him out of the tunnel. And they're like, he's deflating. His body's lost its like elasticity. Somehow it's been like perforated and it's just like collapsing. It's very, very disturbing. It um, also, and like, listen, I've already complained about this, but just one more thing. The other things we learn about this morph from them being inside the morph also don't make any sense. Because why on any planet, anywhere, would an animal evolve with insatiable hunger, so much so that one of its options is to eat dirt, which is not nutritionally valuable for it, until it dies from overeating? It doesn't make any sense. Also, there's a line where it has compound eyes, but its brain isn't developed enough to understand the images coming from the compound eyes, which, no, incorrect, not how anything works. What is wrong with you people? Go on. You have a point about the eyes. I will say it is possible that dirt on the taxon homeworld is nutritious. Ooh, good point. I accept that. I keep my complaint about the eyes. (laughs) That might be Tobias just not quite clocking it quickly enough. (laughs) Axe at some point, when he morphed a taxon for the first time, morphs to a puddle of goo like Alex Mack, and then (laughs) has his taxon body emerge from that puddle of goo, which I absolutely love. That's one of my favorite morphs of all time. (laughs) I really liked the speculation on taxon psychology. This Tobias realizing it's not just that they're hungry, it's that they're afraid of not getting enough. Mm. And he describes that as, he says, yes, a fear, grossly exaggerated, beyond anything humans experience, a desperate fear of not having enough, a terror of starvation, a horror that your essential needs will go unfulfilled, a horror demented and contorted by the tax on mind until it became a sick, murderous evil. And like, this is obviously an extreme case. And I'm also like not, I'm not trying to make light of this with this comparison, but like it does, it reminds me of what I feel like a lot of us are tasting a little bit of right now and like seems to be affecting some people more strongly than others, like this whole hoarding impulse, this idea that like we're used to having these things available to us and oh no, what if we, what if we can't get the things that we need for our essential needs to be fulfilled? And that triggers sort of a fear in humanity also that like results in people buying all the toilet paper in Costco. And yeah, it feels like it's a very relatable fear, even if Texans experience it more strongly on a regular basis. It's also, it's really interesting because later he he talks about how the Texans' fear and insecurity and Taylor's fear and insecurity and his own fear and insecurity, like, are leading them down a bad path, right? So it's like evil mm-hmm. being relatable and rooted in weakness, right? In fear, um, yeah. But it's also really interesting to then push it a little bit further and say, biologically, this creature has so much insecurity that it is inherently evil. Ooh, right? Yeah. Like, and like the taxons have always, to Grace's point, they're, they're actually one of the more developed alien species because of the Andalite Chronicles in terms mm-hmm. of like having a culture. Mm-hmm. But 
in the exposition, they're the evil ones. They're the voluntary controllers. Yeah, they're the yeah. gross monster worms. Also, they're super gross. They're horrible. I hate <laughs> them, but I like reading about them. And <laughs> I, yeah. So you don't want a pet taxon? Oh, no. It would eat, it would eat me. Where would you even put it? it yes. I want like a you? pet taxon that's like the size of... An earthworm? Like a AAA battery. Because I think it well might, that might be that might be small enough that it could nibble on me and not pierce the skin, <laughs> and it would be it would be kind of like in like a big fuzzy caterpillar way. Like it'd be fun to have one of those as a pet, like a taxon. And it would be small no, enough that you could constantly. It'd be like, so gross. No, it'd food. be like having a silverfish for a pet. It's, it's just like just skittering around everywhere with its little jelly eyes. Okay, you'd have to keep it in a cage, obviously. Ah. <laughs> It's needles? No, no, this is terrible. <laughs> All right, I'm glad you've decided against the taxon pet. We don't have to get the Helmicrons to shrink the I just, taxon for you. I hate taxons, but I draw the line at saying they are biologically evil. To me, that's a bridge too far. No, it is a weird thing to say that this species is, like, biologically evil. It, I mean, maybe it's more like they're biologically predisposed to evil in that they seem to have these needs that are not, you know, they seem to have this biological, like, intense fear of their needs not being fulfilled, and they seem to actually need a lot of nourishment that's maybe hard for them to get at the level that they need it. I don't know. Yeah, and it's unclear that, to Gray's point, it's unclear that evil is actually perpetuated by taxons on the taxon homeworld outside mm -hmm. of the context mm -hmm. of being slaves in a far-flung empire. Yeah, yeah, and that is, that's Tobias's characterization that, like, the fear has turned to evil. Right. Yeah. Well, right, and it, it totally makes sense as a parallel for Tobias to draw. It's just, like, mm -hmm. taking it literally, mm -hmm. and, like, it's, like, because and of the different modes the series has, like, in the Andalite Chronicles, I think the work is done to say it's more nuanced than that. Yeah. No reason why Tobias should think that. No, he's, like, in a taxon morph digging underground to, like, perform this horrible action of exploding the Yerkbo. Like, he's he's in a bad place. In and Elf Elfingor has the same reaction until he has the, like, the soothing hive voice mm -hmm, in his head, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when Tobias becomes a taxon, he thinks about eating his friends, which yeah. I find delightful. <laughs> um, he talks about, <laughs> I pictured Marco. And the next thing I knew, I imagined him in my mouth, his soft tan flesh, sawed up, swallowed, and Jake, bigger, and Axe. <laughs> But here's, here's maybe the closest like textual evidence for Tobias kind of being into Taylor in some way. Uh -huh. Maybe this is just how women like Taylor get I described I don't know, it kind of sounds like he's into Marco, but okay. Yeah, but he sees Taylor dressed in a tank top and soft, thin cotton khakis. Her clothes would melt in my mouth. Her soft pink shoulders beckons to be devoured. You know, I don't think it's any stronger than the language he used for Marco. <laughs> uh, yeah, to, as soon as Tobias starts eating the dirt, Taxons can digest it very fast mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. leaves behind just like a huge steaming stream of shit that is so smelly, Jake complains about it <laughs> from up on the street where he is. Yeah, but it's it's like it's packed into the sides of the tunnel to like, I don't know, somehow like create a surface that will keep the tunnel intact. It's like a protective layer or something. Very efficient. They really I mean, make this tunnel quickly. Yeah, it makes sense if you think about it in the context of what we learned in the Andalite Chronicles, right? Where they're mm -hmm. basically like giant hive creatures who are creating these tunnels in this like, maybe the voice of the mountain is the voice of the hive if the hive was created by 10 foot long centipedes. 
But like, you know, they could have avoided all this trouble if they'd remembered Gray's rule about not morphing hive animals. Oh, damn. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, yeah. That was their mistake. Why do you not listen to Taylor? Why do they not listen to you? Okay, so can we talk a little bit about taxon hibernation? Yeah. So taxon hibernation exists, I think, only for one of my favorite jokes in the book, which I will get to. But Tobias later triggers the hibernation state, and here's what he says. I searched the taxon consciousness for a clue. I found it suddenly in a mental vision, an image of bodies mounted into an endless mountain. The picture relaxed me. I could feast forever. I didn't have to find food. I had enough right there. That's kind of nice, but also weird that he got that image through the instincts of the mind. There was a, there were a few like morph a thing and like really get its mind in this book that were a little yeah. weird. But tell me more about taxon hibernation and your favorite joke. Oh yeah, well, so when Axe first morphs a taxon, it's like, uh oh, taxons, you know, they are dangerous, and um, but Axe isn't moving. And the Animorphs are like, what's going on? <laughs> um, they're trying to talk to Axe. Jake's like, get moving, buddy. And then Marco saunters up toward the big worm, his ape, his ape arms dangling loosely. He looked at Axe with exaggerated puzzlement, strolled the length of him, then announced, it's a comprehensive system failure. Can't be fixed on site. We'll have to haul this beauty back to the shop. <laughs> I loved that. (laughs) So good. So good. Marco using humor in the best way that Marco uses humor, which is to relax the tension. Uh, Yeah, really good. Oh, ooh, ooh, okay. So when he gets to the yerk pool, he's like, oh, it's like a steel dome. This must be the yerk pool. Why don't I use my caustic spit and like mouth of razor sharp teeth to bore through a four foot by four foot (laughs) cube of steel? That's incredible! <laughs> Taxons are so strong and scary. Oh my god. Okay, this is another thing that if I had remembered this book, I would have changed in 37. The Animorphs could have just morphed a taxon and gotten in through the side of the facility. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they would, they would not have known. No. They, no, that's true. They wouldn't have known. They didn't have taxomorphs at the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't spoil taxomorphs yeah. for great. Also, your plan was better. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, if they could have megamorphed, you know. Ooh, the mouth of a taxon. <laughs> oh, no. So gross. Right before they run into Taylor for the first time, Rachel shows up to rescue Tobias. Her wild grizzly bear claws flashed like giant steel rigatoni. <laughs> and lashed my captors off. I love that. I'm, I'm sorry, what? Giant totally steel rigatoni. <laughs> it's yeah. brilliant. The claws flashed. Like pasta, only if pasta were made out of steel. No, you know, like rigatoni. They've got the. It makes sense. They kind of look like claws. Like it's weird, but I love it. Okay, I have to say we haven't talked at all about how Tobias acquires and like an adult woman's body and morphs Whoa, into it. Oh, that's so true. All I want, Tobias, is for you to tell me what it's like to have boobs. <laughs> you did not deliver on this. I cannot believe you did not think about it. It's like, this is like the only thing that this should be about. And like, there's a little bit of hand-waving where he's like, it's like, we had some concerns about this morph in particular. And like, you know, I don't know. But they finally yeah. crossed this, this you know, gender swap human line, which I think hasn't it's been crossed so in the true. series. Does it count if he's a bird? Yes, it counts. <laughs> However, 
so even though like it's middle grade, they're not going to talk about what it's like to yeah. be a woman's body. But they do, he does have this awesome moment where he finds out what it's like to be in a very attractive person's body yeah, that I like. Yeah, yeah. Where he and Taylor are both ordering coffees together. Uh-huh. And the checkout clerk is just like really into her <laughs> and is like being super nice to Tobias. And he's like, oh, wow. Like, is this what Rachel feels like all yeah, the time? Yeah. And I, I, I appreciated having that moment. Least. Yeah. Also, like, it's not even specifically that. It's also just that there's something about being so beautiful that stops other people in their tracks. So the reason that he brings that up is they're at this cafe, totally ridiculous, by the way, and Taylor purrs like Rachel has been wont to do, decaf latte with skim. (laughs) Um, And then Tobias, in Taylor's body, smiles at this poor barista And he almost falls over with the force and beauty of her smile. And Tobias says, I've been on the receiving end before. Adorable, by the way. (laughs) I've just never been the source. Is this what Rachel experienced? Was this part of what made her so brave? And it's like something about the confidence of knowing that you're, you're beautiful and that people want to look at you and that you can intimidate people just by the strength of your smile, which maybe because Rachel is pretty and maybe because of the 10,000 shining white teeth, <laughs> but like, it's, it's kind of a nice like indication of why Tobias loves Rachel so much. Like it is that she is fierce and that she completes him and that she is like a good balance to him. But it's also that like, she is so gorgeous that smiling at him takes his breath away. And I think it's kind of cute. It is cute. I have a, not just like a silly thing passage that I wanted to read. When Jake is like, it's your call whether we deal with Taylor or not before he goes to meet with her. They're kind of thinking about like, oh, Wizard 3, Civil War within the Yerks. What do we do? It hasn't worked out before. This isn't personal. And Tobias is like, actually, it is personal. (laughs) So Jake says, do we deal with Taylor or not? I looked away from the group, out through the loft window, out at the moon, gigantic on the horizon. People have told me that when the moon fills the sky like that, when it looms huge like a glow-in-the-dark beach ball, it's really just an illusion. It's your mind playing tricks on you. And it's true. If you look at the moon through a camera lens, it's just a dinky dot in the sky. Our minds make it bigger than it is. She's dangerous, I said after a moment, but if we face her together, I stopped. What if Taylor was all I knew she was, and worse? I looked back at the orange-white moon. I knew it was just an illusion, but I couldn't take my eyes off it. Immense and amazing. I don't know, I said finally, but I think we have to deal. Win or lose, I had to deal. Yeah, I like that a lot. It's a much better use of the moon than the use in 41. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah, but like, I just, I love the, what Taylor represents in terms of, uh, you know, she's not just a literal stumbling block for Tobias to overcome, but also she takes up way too much space in, in his mind. Right, and he's using that to say, oh, okay, maybe she's not as bad as I think she is. But actually, no, she really is. Like, she has this sort of outsized place in his mind, but that doesn't make her any less actually terrible than she is. Yeah. It's not one of those fears where, like, oh, I just have to face it and it'll go away. It's like, the fear is justified. Yeah. All right, should we do some 90s moments? Guys, guys, Cassie has a cell phone. Oh, my God. Well, not for long. Yeah, kind of. (laughs) She has a cell phone for emergencies, but if she does like extra chores, she's allowed to talk on it for half an hour a week because like phone plans in the year 2000 were all like, I don't know, very expensive, really cost a lot to talk on your cell phone. How many minutes do you think are just spent 
waiting for Jake to hang up instead of her hanging out. <laughs> That's like one of the <laughs> So they talk for two minutes and then it's, no, you hang up. Okay, bye. Then they're both waiting. You didn't hang up. You didn't hang up either. <laughs> Gross. Uh, <laughs> there was an AOL welcome screen. So when Axe gets the internet, he gets AOL. He doesn't just like, connect to the internet like he specifically gets service through america online amazing there's also a lot of like Wait, what about web- freak america online from book 16 <gasps> web access america yeah why didn't he go through i web guess they just got america? lazier about having like fake i guess if you're gonna like accuse the head of aol of being an evil controller you <laughs> right. know? so that's why he didn't get web access america <laughs> because you know he didn't want to deal with joe bob finestre and like right. have joe bob be able right. to get his data well, because Web Access America was destroyed after Joe Bob Finestri died in a tragic house fire. Right. They got bought by AOL. Right. Exactly. The forest's <laughs> IP address was blocked, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. how was this internet working? There was a lot of, like, web and net with a capital W or N, respectively, mm-hmm. which I think is great. And, like, email, capital E. All of those, like, we are learning internet. My very favorite 90s reference was the amount of time they spend in Borders, because that is where I spent a lot of my time <laughs> in the 90s and early 2000s, at Borders and the Borders Cafe. Uh, uh-huh. So that made me very happy. Also, I would like to point out that while they're at the Borders Cafe, Taylor orders the decaf latte with skim milk, and Tobias, in Taylor's body, orders a triple espresso heavy on the cream and the sugar. Not how you order an espresso, what is wrong with you? And then she says, you dare abuse my body, you filthy grass eater. <laughs> what are you talking about? You both ordered espresso drinks. What, what do you mean, abuse my body? Well, one had a lot of cream and sugar. I mean, a decaf latte with skim milk has more than a triple espresso. I think, I think, the, I think that yerks consider caffeine a hard drug, and this is a little bit of yerk prudishness, because Taylor got decaf, <laughs> oh, and okay. Taylor Bias got <laughs> triple espresso. I, yeah. I do love the idea of morphing and then eating and just like going, going wild with Ooh, what you consume and yes. then just demorphing. Like spicy food would be what I would do uh-huh. more of. But yeah, why not have tons of caffeine and see what that's like? Probably that a lot like anxiety, but. <laughs> like, could you have a morphing related like eating disorder? Ooh, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah where yeah, you yeah, just yeah. like binge and then do more. Yeah. Like, I bet it could get really unhealthy. I mean, I don't, I think maybe I was just reading too much into this, but I felt that was a little bit what they were doing with the taxons, like insatiable mm-hmm. eating without ever being able to stop. And like, it's kind of a disease Ooh. and they can't, you know, and I was like, are we, what are we doing with this? And then it never went anywhere. So mm-hmm. it, well, they, they are eating disorder monsters. That is, yeah. that is, uh, I haven't really thought about that. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. That's also like a, you know, topic that right. hasn't come up. I mean, it's interesting. Well, there's that thing with Cassie and Megamore's four. It didn't really go anywhere either. But where she was like, I oh, won't eat the Ben and Jerry's. What if Jake yeah, isn't dating yeah, me because yeah. of my thighs? Yeah. Yeah, there's a down. lot. Yeah, there's a lot of like kids going through puberty and having body image problems stuff that the Animorphs would cover if it hadn't left the school setting behind like so completely <laughs> by this point. Yeah, it's not a, it has bigger, bigger problems. <laughs> and also they just like morph out of their bodies. Like, right. yeah, they're very lucky. In not having body image be as present in their minds, right. probably. 
Yeah, they've got bigger things to worry about. Yeah, actually, the thing where Cassie was thinking about her thighs was in Megamorphs 4, where she didn't have the morphing power. I wonder if it's deliberate or just accidental that they haven't had them have that kind of body image issue come up since getting the morphing power, like in the normal series. I don't know. Yeah. Should we talk about number 44? We should talk about number 44. The unexpected? Is that the number 44? It is the unexpected. <laughs> Does that mean that Gray will not be able to predict it by definition? Uh, we'll see. Gray, you don't get to look at the inside cover. Oh, thank you. I was just about to ask. I mean, it's obviously about the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> so they go back in time. Oh my goodness. Look at this cover. Oh my goodness, look at this cover. <laughs> you know which animal wasn't on my, like, three things they should morph but haven't yet? Kangaroo. Oh no! What? How surprising of me. Okay, it's a Cassie book. She's morphing into a kangaroo. It could be worse, I guess, but it's not great. <laughs> um, some say you shouldn't play mind games. Tell that to the Yerks, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> okay, uh, it's going to be, um, um, she gets a kangaroo in Australia. So <laughs> it's, um, it's going to be like 11, but instead of going to the jungle, they go to Australia. So maybe not a Sario rip, but some kind of like space-time thing where they get sent to different places and Cassie gets sent to Australia. Uh, Visser 3 heard about kangaroos and was like, I need one of those for my menagerie. Oh, yeah. Face. And so he goes to try and get one of those and Cassie wants to protect them. And so she ends up getting to Australia. So is it coincidence that Asario Rip sends the Animorphs there while the Yurks are invading? Um, yes. Great. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it, I guess. I suspect right. I'm not queen of prediction being this one. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm not saying anything. Your oh, reign no. is lifelong. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you are still the queen of predictions, no matter what happens in this one. Y yay for me. <laughs> All right. So well, we'll see you next time. Yeah, we'll see you on Zoom. Be expected. Only Gray, though. Unexpected. Everyone else doesn't get to see us on Zoom. If you want to find us, we are at animorphology.com and at animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. Okay, I regret to tell you that earthishours.com is not available, but I have purchased earthisaurus.com. <laughs> Ha 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 ha!